Ready? Absolutely. Here we go. Here we go. You're listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. And we're coming to you from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people and the Wasanish people. Welcome, Welcome to, to the show. show. Okay, ready? Ready. Recording? Fabulous. <clears throat> so, Ted, what are we talking about today? Well, today we have the good fortune to have with us Dr. Darlene Clover, who is a professor in the Department of Educational Psychology and Leadership Studies, where she teaches, researches, writes in the leadership studies field with a specific emphasis on adult education in community spaces. Mm -hmm. And so today we kind of thought that we would talk a little bit about the idea of museum hacks, which is something that you're doing that is incredibly fun and interesting. And so for people who don't really know what that is, can you give us a bit of an intro? Sure. So let me start uh, with the idea of, of to hack, because uh, you think of that usually around computers or someone hacking into your bank account. Uh, so it's something that's very subversive and usually quite problematic. But we like the term because to hack really means to enter without authority or authorization. And when we're thinking about museums and the problematic of museums, the way in which they tell or don't tell uh, stories about our lives, about history, about art, who gets included, whose knowledge counts, they're not inviting us in to challenge the narratives that they have, the stories that they tell. They don't give us authorization to enter their authoritative narratives about the world. So that's why we like the term, using the term very much. Um, yes. Okay, so, so you've entered... Uh, without authority or authorization, and once you're in there, what, what do we next? Do? What happens? <laughs> well, we the hack generally consists um, of a series of questions that we have asked each other, and they can be they are quite open ended questions. So that is that we're not telling. Um, the students who we work with, or even ourselves as the researchers, what we will find or ex can expect to find. But the questions are, are open-ended enough to just get you to look more deeply for the first time at what museums are actually saying, what the stories are, what the artworks are saying, what the displays are saying, the objects, who's in them and who isn't. Most of the time, unless you're an art history major or an anthropologist who focuses on uh, institutional ethnographies, most people pass through a museum without ever really paying attention to what it is that they're saying. Nonetheless, they are still absorbing um, what it is. So to, to let me just give you an example of what that, what I mean by that. When I start my class and I ask them to name five male artists and five female artists, they will immediately start naming Van Gogh, Monet, Van, uh, Michelangelo. You can imagine how quickly the list comes. When it, when I, when it comes to, to the female artists, their eyes go meet the floor, they look around, they're very, very nervous. Uh, occasionally, they'll, somebody will come up with possibly Emily Carr. What I did not say was European, famous, or painter. But because of these institutions, this is what people hear. Mm -hmm. So these inf they, they have an influence on us, no matter how, whether we frequent them or not, they still have an influence on our lives. 
So the the kinds of questions that we go in with are can be very simplistic. They can be quantitative questions. Enter into a particular gallery, a room, a gallery, and we say, count, simply count how many of the works are by men and how many are by women and or by non-white men or non-white women, if you want to build it further because of the intersectionalities. It's a very simple activity, but it's very telling when you go through, for example, Tate Britain, which has over a thousand paintings, eight of which are by women. Suddenly you start to see that the artists in our lives are men. The creative people in this world are men. That's what they're telling you. It makes uh, students quite upset when they start to see it. So that's um, when we use visual methodologies. So it consists of visual methodologies. So questions around visual methodologies of what are men and women doing in the works of art? Um, do, how many women are in this entire exhibition? How many women's stories are being told? Just to stay with women just, just for the moment. But it, of course, becomes very complicated when you start looking at that because which women count. But I'll start with that first. And, and, and there's also things around questions around relationality. There was one instance when I took a group through and the conversation was the one woman said, there are no women in this exhibition. And the other person said, yes, there are. I saw women. And she said, where? And she said, well, there was a tea service and a lacy fan. And the students said, you saw that as women? So the way in which if they don't have the stories, they will substitute something, usually something very domestic, so that we will think we saw something. So we believe that we saw women in this, this exhibition. So, so we're asking them to take note of the absences and the presences. What is present and what is absent? So questions also ask things like that. We also ask, we, we take things up through a critical discourse analysis. So we look at the way in which language comes. So in one example, in uh, one of the galleries, there were four paintings. Two were by women and two were by men. Exceptional. That's interesting to have a balance like that on one wall. The rest of it was totally imbalanced, but on that wall. When the, the language to describe the men was about their, uh, their brush strokes, uh, their genius, what they had brought to the genre, uh, and the women were described in relation to their fathers or their famous husbands. So there was nothing about them as artists. They were simply described through the men who were important in the world and therefore in their lives, and therefore that's why they, the assumption is they're in the gallery because they're related to someone famous. There really isn't any other kind of discussion that you can have. And then, so that's the, the series of questions ask us to look more deeply at the displays, at the artworks themselves, um, at the stories of the narratives and the language, and they take everything up from beginning to end. So you, as a student of museums and someone who looks at what's there and what's not there, 
and when you you look at them in this part of the world and probably in Europe as well, I would think you've got this overrepresentation of the work of men, and that's arguably something that reflects a larger patriarchy and a, and a, and a society that's been that way for millennia. Are there museums and places of representation and art and thought in the world that that reflect more of a balance? Are there countries and cultures that have stepped away from that sort of misrepresentation or overrepresentation that you see here and are and are doing a a, a more equitable job of it? Um, not countries or cultures. I wouldn't quite put it like that, but I get exactly what you mean. And there are, there has been over the last few years, probably the last 10 years or so, a, a great deal of pressure been brought on these institutions to become more socially responsible and responsive and to tell the stories of society and to tell b broader stories to have different kinds of uh, representations. So there's a couple of challenges, though, and one of them, um, before, I, before I elaborate a little bit more on that, but one of them is that um, in night, I was just in, in the UK for three months. And in 1918, some women got the vote. You had to be married, have property. It, it wasn't for everyone, but some women got the vote. So the suffragettes had won one small step forward. I went to a number of different exhibitions, in which there were huge publicity about them and images, um, but I walked, two of them I walked right through without seeing them because of where they were positioned, which is a problem, but equally uh, because women's, because people's stories were never considered important, the items were never collected. So what we're talking about with most institutions, although there is the, there is, there is the non-objects, there are other kinds of exhibitions that aren't object-orientated or site-orientated. The majority are. So if you have not bothered to see something as relevant or important in society, you do not collect, the museum does not collect it, and therefore the museum cannot find it. And that's, that's really important to understand is that because of that larger patriarchal uh, structure of the world, women's everyday lives and the actions that women had, and even you would think, well, the suffragettes, they were slashing paintings and going after, they were, they never hurt anyone, but they were going after property because they felt that the way to go after class and money was to destroy property if you wanted to get attention. But even those women, as powerful and in your face and in the streets, and they had buttons and everything else, there's very little was kept. So it's to try to find individual women who might have something. But there are some museums, and I would argue that the smaller museums are having a little easier time of it, because the smaller museums have a little bit more control and less um, board members or government control over what they can say and do. And so they are starting to take up different kinds of issues. Haida Gwaii did a fantastic exhibition which, in which it called on artists and different people to... This was when the Northern um, Gateway Pipeline was going to be put through that was going to be into Kitimat. So the Haida Gwaii took up the, what would the impact for artists to paint and create objects and create stories about the impact of some kind of a massive oil spill, which was, would be pretty much guaranteed up there. And the Kitimat Museum 
actually started a series of conversations with the community. People are very divided in this, but they decided to be a place of encounter to bring people together. So there are instances where one is doing something and another isn't. Um, one, one of the areas that I'm looking at is what I call fashioning women because women's history is a history of fashion, no matter where you go. So I've been looking comparatively at, uh, at different exhibits. And so there was one on Christian Dior and his godlike ability to put women back in corsets. And then just down the street at the Bata Shoe Museum in Toronto was an exhibition called Victims of Fashion, where they looked at the way in which um, women were... Uh, the fabrics had uh, toxic pigments in them, and uh, many were very highly flammable. And in fact, um, Oscar Wilde, who you may know the author, uh, Oscar Wilde, lost both his sisters to their uh, dresses hitting, a f hitting the flames in a fireplace and they went up in, in smoke. So they, there, are, there are ways in which um, museums are trying to tell different stories, tackle controversial and problematic uh, subjects. I, 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 I mean, I couldn't have to note that the two women who perished because their dresses went up in, in flames were... Again, you referenced the fact that I might know them because of their famous brother. That's it. Yeah. So yep. example of But that. you won't know their names. No. Well, and that's part of, I think a lot of people too, when we're talking about this, they go, okay, well, it's 2018, gender equality is here, we're doing great, this is good, and, and what have you. And in some ways I had, you know, I was raised in a feminist household, so I had some of that same mentality. And we went on a museum hack, because I was in Darlene's class, and um, we went to uh, an exhibition and we were kind of, the perspective was to kind of look A, to see if women were included and B, to see how they were included. And at the beginning I had like this thing where I was like, oh, you know, this was in 2017, no big deal. Like I'm sure this is going to be good. It's not going to be too bad. That's great. And as we went through, and I'd been through this exhibit before. Um, and it didn't tweak my radar. But as we were going through, I found out, because I counted, that there were more representations of animals than there were women, which was shocking. And when there were women, it was more in a passive, unidentified, objectified, um, general kind of way. Stereotyped and essentialized. Totally. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, yes, I think that we're going, we're doing a lot in relation to gender and I think we're, we're marching along that path, but representation matters. And so when we're sitting there and we're bringing through young people and young women into these types of, of, um, places and we're not represented. And yes, part of that could be that historically with patriarchy, we didn't, we weren't counted because of our gender. But the reality is, is it's 2018 and we're still not being represented in a way that I think reflects what we think society is. And so although I think a lot of people would sit here and go, you know, whatever, gender equality, that's fine. I encourage you to do what I did and go to a museum or go to an art exhibit or go anywhere that's a public space where things are being presented and look, look who's counted, look who's not, look at, and even just, even with the women, are they women of color? 
Are they white women? What are they? Because at the end of the day, our history matters and how we're told about the history matters. And we're kind of in some ways having to look at history in a very different lens to begin to see how important th this is. It was shocking to me at the Museum Hack and that everybody in our group was floored. It's appalling. Yeah. Right. And the important thing about the hack is is that it does it does show you, you know, knowledge is representation, and representation is knowledge. Yeah. The, the, and whether you think you're absorbing the stories that they tell, and therefore the absences of women, and just assuming that's common sense. It's common sense that they wouldn't be there. It's common sense that men created the world, that men are the adventurers and the heroes. It's just, it's common sense. So the idea is to disrupt the common sense, to disrupt people in, and to, to create some kind of an intervention as well. To, to go back to what you were asking me, Ted, about what else happens is that uh, we use um, Post-it notes one of, one of the activities is to use post-it notes um, in which uh, students or we as researchers or whatever it is rewrite labels or ask provocative questions and actually stick them around the museum. But I'll tell you how rooted gender is, uh, gender, gender non-change is. We have worked with a museum for many, many times and we have put in recommendations based on what we found through the hack, over and over and over. So one of the recommendations was around, because we were doing uh, combining an ecological museum hack with a feminist hack. So one of them was looking at, which is why there's more animals than women, so looking, sort of crossing those, the eco-gender uh, divide. There was an exhibition on logging. And all the images were of white men in the logging industry in uh, British Columbia. So we argued that this, the logging industry was not solely white men, that it needed to be, um, you know, there needed to be uh, a story that told the story of logging in this country and who actually were the loggers. So the museum went to a great deal of trouble and spent a great deal of money to change the panels, so these are huge panels, the panels now reflect the faces of non-white men as well. Not only that, but they actually interviewed, I think they interviewed Chinese and Sikh men who had worked in the logging uh, industry a you know, long time ago, so older men. So you can actually even plug in and listen to their stories. That would have cost the museum a lot of money to do that. When you're talking about changing panels and changing displays, you're talking about money. Most of the recommendations that we had put in were minor so that we didn't, because we thought if we start asking for very expensive things. One of the few, so none, so that that's, and I'm, I am very, very pleased that they took that up. That's terrific. That, that tells another story of history that needed to be told. Not one of the gender recommendations that we made have been taken up, not one. And in fact, they have been actively put down. In one place, there's a, you walk into one of the galleries and it says men, animals, and machines. All we asked was that they change it to people or humans or something like that, because one of the only images in that room 
is women in skirts doing farming. And they can't, they won't do it. And it would cost nothing to do it. And why do you think that is? I th I mean, there are many, many reasons, I guess, but I, I think that gender is still not understood. There, as um, I think as Courtney was saying, it's the, the issue has been solved. There's equality. Women can vote, women can run for office, women can work here, women can do all the things that men can do. But equality is not equity, and there's still a... a absolutely no ability to be able to see that. So the struggles when you sit there, the only explanation that you can come up with is why would we not change one word that wouldn't cost anything, but yet change huge panels is gender, is that it's just not seen. It's not understood as the issue that it needs to be. And that's hard because I think it's that speaks to, and you put a nail on the head, that equality isn't equity. And I think that we need to understand that, right? Yes, it's 2018. We have some crazy stuff going on right now. We have Trump in the White House in the United States. Um, we have a lot of backlash that's happening. Hate crimes are on the rise. We have people who are being marginalized. You know, so even though maybe in um, policy, you know, there are some great things that are happening, but that's, it doesn't root out thousands of years of patriarchy and thousands of years of privilege. And that doesn't mean, you know, speaking to the people who are listening to this who aren't, you know, marginalized or or women or whatever. That doesn't mean um, that people should be ashamed. It doesn't mean any of that, but it does mean that the problem isn't solved yet. And the only way for us to move forward is to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Because when we don't talk about this type of stuff, that's when that's when it creeps back in. And that's what we don't want to have happen. And you can do these hacks for anything from any lens, right? Which is really interesting and fun. Because it allows your brain to kind of look at the assumptions that you didn't even know that you were absorbing, right? So whether that's um, looking at the inclusivity of Indigenous people or how they're represented or looking at different ways, especially, you know, with logging. And I'm from Treaty 7 territory, so knowing when people built the railroads, there were a ton of... Um, immigrants who were Chinese immigrants who were brought in that were basically slaves um, who built that railroad. And those are things that we don't know either. And so we're having to look at our history that was written with, uh, with an un... I want to say uneducated, but that's not even right, with slanted views, right, towards privilege and power and having to readjust and rewrite that history to be more inclusive. And I think that's part of what this conversation is about and what, why these hacks are so important because they show us how different, how these, this, these problems are not going away. If anything, they're becoming more divided and we need to have a, a talk about it. We need to speak about it and we need to learn from it. Visuality. Power writes its own history. So a, as a way of facilitating this kind of public discourse, how long has this notion of hacking museums been around? Because I, 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 I've only come across it, say, in the last five years. Um, at one level, I, I admire the, 
the openness, I suppose, of these institutions, because in, in essence, when you create a display that's static and it represents someone or a group of people's representation of what happened and it's out there for people to come and look at, um, you're kind of a sitting duck in terms of critique. You're, you're there and people can come and look at it and, and think all kinds of things. And for them to be now opening themselves up to this and inviting people in to come in and say, hack us. What are the origins of that? How long is it? Where did it emerge? How long has it been going on? No, most of them don't actually invite you in and say hack us. Uh, I've well, been kicked well, out. Well, <laughs> um, well, we, okay. We've done it here, yeah. I should say. Yes. You know, okay. At, at so, this, yeah. With we, this museum. We know these educators and these educators, there are a lot of people that work in these institutions that also see the problems and they also... That's why when we put in the recommendations, we work with the educators because they're the ones and the curators because they're the ones who can help us put in the recommendations and they help us run it. But we do a lot of hacks where they where where they don't um, actually like what we're doing. The visitors do. Some visitors do. Some visitors don't as well. But it's also um, a very good indication when you get visitors coming up to you and starting in some sort of racist diatribe about something or the reason women aren't around is because they didn't do anything and you get those kinds of things. That's when you start to really realize the authority that these institutions have. And there is a huge amount. I was reading a um, uh, article the other day that was talking about these are the most trusted, knowledge-legitimating institutions in society. That is that they are deeply trusted. Everybody who walks in, not everybody, but a lot of people who walk in just automatically trust them, which is one of the reasons why it's so important to hack them. So, but... I would argue that feminist cultural theorists have been doing this for a long time. The guerrilla girls have gone in. It's predominantly been done around art rather than um, museums themselves, but it has been going on for a long time. But uh, we're really trying to operationalize it pedagogically rather than simply methodologically. So it's been a real sort of almost a research intensive process to look at that research and then writing from it. And our interest has been to operationalize this and do it with different community groups. We did it with community groups in Italy and in uh, England. And uh, it works. It, it works. It's, uh, it's quite amazing. But the idea of going into these institutions is is people have been doing it for a long time. It's, it's, and that shows you their resilience. If we're still hacking them because they're a problem, these are pretty resilient. <laughs> and that's one of the things I, I, I hate and I love about them mm -hmm. is that um, I, I really don't like that, how bad they are. But for a critical pedagogue... It's perfect. <laughs> you can't talk about these. You can talk for hours about this. And then you walk into that institution and you say, colonialism, what does it look like? Stand here. Look at the Living Languages exhibition. Now turn. Look at the Iron Gates becoming BC and the, and the ship coming at you. That's colonization. That's what it looks like. The visual is immediately there. And then they, you go in and they've got the forts and so fences. I, I guess, you know, a, an argument in their favor then would be that 
you know, with, with the right kind of preparation and sensitization to these concepts, they can be sites of great learning as well. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. they're absolutely, because they're visual yeah. they're, and they engulf you. So you, they actually pull you into the story because you're physically there. So it's an embodied experience. You're pulled into the story. There's visuals everywhere. They're showing and telling you different kinds of things. So no, they're perfect microcosms of what is wrong in society, which, again, you don't see. The unseen, the epistemologies of mastery that carry on undisturbed because they hide in plain sight. And the museum hides them in plain sight. So how do you see what hopes, what tries so, what works so effectively to conceal itself? Well, yeah, and if you took these museums, if these museums were open, and I think a lot of them are trying to get that way, and that's great, but these are places of learning, right, where you can come in and people can see it. And so if they could, if there was this idea where it's like, okay, so we now realize that we're coming from a very colonialized, patriarchal type of viewpoint when it comes to history, what if we switch that on its head? I don't think you're taking anything away from the museum or from the exhibit by being inclusive. I don't. I think what you're doing is you're allowing humanity to see representations of themselves because we're, we were all there, right? We were all there. So why not have an exhibition or an exhibit or an art display or gallery that shows that, right? Because right now we're only seeing this itty bitty little part of what that history was. And for me, as a person who likes the big context, I want to I want to see what else was going on. And it's out there, and it's available, and it can happen. And yes, it's challenging, I think, to change these things. But if we're doing it in society, and if we're doing it in life, like, why don't we do it at these, at these institutions? Well, <clears throat> one could imagine a day, uh, a time, perhaps, when... You, you could have museums set up so that they were sites of continual ongoing feedback from the people who come there with a cell phone app and some kind of Bluetooth technology. And you would invite comments like the equivalent of a everyone had the, the ability to put a, a digital sticky mm -hmm. on that uh, on, on that display. And that could be fed back into the, the museum itself so that the designers and the, and the people who put them together are getting a sense of how people are reacting and if there are things they're concerned about or if there are things that are missing or there, you know, there's a, the potential for, I think, a lot more interaction with, uh, with the way we've become much more digital. I would agree. Um, I, I think you do have to remember, though, that you, this is a disruption to their authority. But, and but, they but, have the authority, they believe, to be telling they, they, if you, some of the conversations that you can have with the Curators is they they're they're very very grounded. Well, one of the things that we've suggested is um, that if you can't, they they also can't afford to just change up every single display, and that's fair. Uh, you have to be able to understand that. But what they can do is ask provocative questions of of the view of the visitors and of themselves, and that's what we're suggesting that they do. Just ask some of the difficult questions. Keep difficult company with yourselves and with your visitors. Um, because if you were simply to put up a sign that was that talked about this history and then it said, but is this really true? Do we really know what the history was like because this is a colonized country and therefore blah, or, you know, or where are the women? 
where are the women in this exhibition? Why does this exhibition not have any women? Because there are legitimate reasons for, in terms of not being able to collect anything and things like that, and there are non-legitimate reasons, and I would argue that the majority of the reasons are not legitimate. But you could simply be provocative, be a place of encounter, be a place that challenges people and yourselves, but you would really have to be able to be comfortable with being challenged, and I'm not sure that they're there yet. I don't think if they're not there, eventually I don't think they'll stay relevant. I don't think that you can stay relevant in a society that is changing this much and not change. Yeah, and, and I think you can make the same argument about schools and universities as mm-hmm. well. I mean, we we retain some authority here in universities, but only in that we have the, 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 the social license to grant credentials. But if you were focused and determined, you could go online and by listening to podcasts, visiting virtual sites, you could get as much of an education as you would get in four years here for virtually no cost at all. What you don't get is the credential at the end that says, I have a degree from mm-hmm. the University of Victoria. Mm-hmm. And and so we've had to struggle as institutions to remain relevant and to retain some of that uh, legitimacy. And I think museums are probably facing yeah. the same. They very much are. Yeah. yeah. And there's, uh, there was an interesting conversation um, I was listening to on the CBC where they were interviewing someone who was here from museums somewhere else and talking about that. And he was talking about all this digital technology. People can now create their own exhibitions and they can do all these things through the technology. And finally, the CBC commentator at the end said, and what then would be your point of being, what, what would be the point of your existence? Why be a physical building if people can just do whatever they want and they can make their own stories and they can tell their own stories and what what authority you and why would we continue to support you? Why would the taxpayers continue to support you? Mm -hmm. It's a legitimate question. It's a very legitimate question if things are just going to take off. So what is the role? What is the role of museums? And um, our, I'm, a, I'm a critical friend of these institutions, and I think they do have a place and a value in society, but I think that they really need to, uh, t- to think about what that is and uh, do something that's a little bit more risky. As some of them, and as I started out in some of the examples that I was giving you, some of them are, there are also women's museums coming up around the world, different, mostly they have no money to buy anything and they're virtual and all of those things. But I've been to one in Merano and one in Denmark and one in Montreal and and they're starting to come up as a space. They also have their limitations in terms of the stories they're telling, but... Uh, and but they're valuable and and important spaces, you know, because yeah. they're 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 places people can go to engage in discourse to have those kinds of conversations. Yes, I was listening to uh, you mentioned the CBC. I was listening to an Ideas show the other night, one of their podcasts, where Susan Gardner, who was the the CEO of the Wikimedia <coughs> Foundation, Canadian broadcaster, then went down to the U.S. and she was talking about the demise <coughs> of of public broadcasting around the world. And what happens when those spaces for discourse shrink, you then end up with competing points of view that aren't so much conversation and understanding as just two groups of people uh, kind of shouting at one another through the media. And and along with that is a decline in uh, democracy. Mm-hmm. That that kind of conversation ceases and it becomes polarized and and so these places like museums, like public broadcasters, like art galleries, like libraries, are are vitally important to uh, to a, 
a functioning and healthy democracy. I would agree. I think these civic institutions, these public spaces are are incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, they just they need to learn some lessons. Well, thank you for a fascinating conversation, Darlene. So good. So good. And uh, we'll, uh, I'm sure, go into the museum and uh, never look too quickly again. Yeah. No, we have ruined a number of <laughs> a number of people. But our idea is not to make you hate the museum. It's just to make you a more critical uh, consumer of the museum narratives. Well, and I think people have been asking institutions and society to do better for a while now. And so the museums shouldn't be exempt from that, right? We have, we can and we will do better. Mm-hmm. And so being able to be participants in that and be able to ask them to do better is being part of the solution, right? So thank you so much, Darlene, Pleasure. for coming and chatting with us today. I had a great time. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Learning Transforms is brought to you by the Faculty of Education and the Association of Graduate Education Students. Learning Transforms is produced by Julie Remy. Sound design is by Xavier Arujo. Special thanks to Darlene Clover. I'm Ted Reekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>